Genesis is the book of beginnings. Exodus is the book of deliverance. Genesis showed the beginning of many things. In fact, there are hundreds of things that began in Genesis. It covers over 8,000 years of recorded history. The beginning of just about everything that is, with a few exceptions like technology and a few other things. But in terms of civilization, architecture, literature, there have been excavated by archaeologists uh, libraries in Egypt with tens of thousands of volumes on everything from astrology to zoology, horticulture, uh, archaeology, and uh, other sciences and studies. Sophisticated cultures, music, literature that parallels anything of the Renaissance or in our own day. The beginning of so many things captured in the book of Genesis. But of all the beginnings, the biggest beginning, at least in terms of the most writing devoted to the beginning, was the beginning of the nation of Israel. The reason why that takes up so much space is because in God's plan, there needed to come a Redeemer for all that is. For humanity and everything else that He created. God planned before the creation that there would come a Redeemer. In order for there to come a Redeemer, there needed to be a people among whom He would be born. And so God from the beginning planned the nation of Israel to be that people from whom His Son would come. So in Genesis, we have the beginning of Israel. In Exodus, we have the deliverance of Israel. Genesis ends with basically one family having migrated into Egypt. That's the end of Genesis. Exodus begins that one family is still living in Egypt, but they've now become a nation of two million strong. A rather prolific family. They believed in having babies. And building into the next generation. And God blessed them. They settled in the delta of the Nile River, an area called Goshen, which was extremely fertile. <laughs> in more ways than one, apparently, it was in the water. <laughs> Never thought of that before. <laughs> but God blessed them there. The Pharaoh that loved Joseph, the first of the leaders of Israel who moved down to Egypt, had long died. Dozens of Pharaohs have come over the ages. 
But the one that loved Joseph and loved the people of Israel were long gone. And now the current Pharaoh wasn't so pleased. In fact, he was rather threatened by Israel. And in our study, there's going to be five sections each week that will be in your notes. There's the Know This book with an outline, and we'll get to that. There's a Pray This book on how to encounter God. The Bible is not just for information. The Bible is given so that we might encounter God. The Bible is our prayer book. And so we're going to point out how we can use each of the books of the Bible as a place in which to encounter God. That's what it's designed for. Then the Eat This Book section on what to memorize And today we're recommending, rather than a verse here and a verse there from the book of Exodus, just memorize Exodus 21 through 17. In fact, as families, if that's all you do in the next two months in terms of your family Bible time, I would encourage all of us to memorize the the first 17 verses of Exodus 20, what are known as the Ten Commandments. We would all be a whole lot better off if we tucked those away in our memories and in our souls. Then we come to the live this book. You can know it and pray it and memorize it, eat it, and yet not practice it. God wants us to live what we're reading and studying. God wants us to apply it to our lives. Then the final section is where to discover Christ in the book. Because Jesus had eyes to see where He appeared everywhere. And Jesus is throughout the book of Exodus. Then on the back side of your notes, I didn't point this out last week, but I just want to draw our attention to the fact that on the back every week, we will have a section for those of us who still have children at home so that we can supplement our study together around the breakfast or dinner tables in our homes, whether it's once a week or five days a week, with Bible reading and some questions to ask to reinforce what we're learning here. Then there's the final section for life groups uh, with questions that we always include because of the importance of our life groups. If you like what happens here on Sunday, you will love a life group. and would encourage you to be involved on both levels. The outline. Know this book. The outline of Exodus is very simple. Exodus means out of here. I'm out of here. And it, what, it's the first half of the book or the first 14 chapters leading up to Israel getting out of Egypt. The second half of the book Chapter 15 to the end of the book is what happened following the Exodus. Chapter 14 is the actual Exodus. But the chapters leading up are what God did to prepare for the Exodus. In order to have an Exodus, you've got to have someone to lead them. And so, chapter 1, God preserves the life of Moses. And it's a miraculous, wonderful chapter. Anyone with half a heart will love chapter 1 of Exodus. 
the heartwarming story of God's love for His people expressed by preserving their future leader Moses. When Pharaoh tried to kill all the Hebrew children, God protected His man Moses. Then we get to chapter 2, and we... Oh, chapter 2. Isn't isn't God awesome? Oh, I'm feeling this. What weekend is this? Martin Luther King weekend. Here we are talking about Exodus. Are you feeling it? Let my people go. Freedom. Freedom for the oppressed. If Martin Luther King Jr. were here today, he would point out the fact that as great a leader as he was, it was God who delivered the oppressed in our nation. God used a man and He used many people to liberate the oppressed in our country. And the same God who heard the heart cries of His people in Exodus chapter 2 heard the heart cries of His people during the time of Dr. Martin Luther King, and he still hears the heart cry of the oppressed around the world. Our God is a merciful God who hears the cries in the middle of the night of women who've been abused and children and the oppressed around the world today. Our God is a God who comes to the rescue of oppressed people. Better watch out or I'll start preaching on that one, Joseph. And the other illustration God gave us. How many of you this week, being cooped up in the house for two or three days, how many of you got cabin fever? How many of you were glad to finally get out? How many of you are glad to be here this morning? Like, man, think of missing this. But our God is the God of deliverance. And He put within us the joy of being set free. Thank God that we have a home to hunker down in like a little cocoon to keep us safe. But thank God for clearing the roads that we could get out. And it was like an exodus. We tasted a little bit of exodus. Well, that's because we all need exodus. We all have a bondage that Jesus wants to liberate us from. Then you come to not only the call of Moses, but then all God did to change the heart of Pharaoh to say, you can go, would you hurry up? Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Get out of here already. And all those plagues were almost like a woman in with contractions and the birth pangs. Every plague got stronger and worse until finally... Israel was released. And then when they were between a rock and a hard place, with their backs up against the Red Sea and they were staring down the barrels of the army of Pharaoh, God rescued them again at the 11th hour. He causes the cloud to come between them so that the army couldn't know what they were shooting at. And they held off. And then God parts the waters and lets them come through. And then when they get out, 
Chapter 15, the great song of Moses. It's captured also in the book of Psalms. A wonderful expression of praise to the Lord. For His deliverance. It's like all eyes on Him. And then, God gave the law. And the whole mountain was covered with fire. God was manifesting His presence. And then He begins equipping them. And the rest of the chapters of Exodus is all about the building now of this migratory people who are finding their way through the wilderness until they get to the promised land. And it continues right on from Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers and Deuteronomy. They all kind of flow together right out of the book of Exodus. But that's the know this book. You see, it's my job to help us put our arms around the Bible. How many of us have ever held a Bible and felt a little overwhelmed? Like, where do I begin? Uh, This is almost intimidating. Study the Bible, it's like, oh yeah, easy for you to say. What we're doing here is breaking it down, getting our arms around it so we can think our way through the high points of the Bible. So there you've got it. That's the, that's the knowing the book of Exodus. In the bigger picture, that's what took place. But at every point, and this is where we come to the pray this book, I want you to look at this list. Open up your notes there. There are so many places that God reveals Himself. He reveals Himself again in chapter 1 in, in preserving Moses' life and the miracle of that. And then the fiery, His fiery presence in the bush of speaking to Moses and calling Him forth and, and redeeming Him in His own exodus out of His own bondages. He was under guilt and shame as a, as a young man having slain and, and actually murdered an Egyptian taking the law into his own hands. Moses, the grabber who, whose fist killed an Egyptian. Now his fist was grabbing a, a rod, a staff, and God said, throw it down. Because it's not going to be your fist that's going to lead you out of Egypt. It's going to be my grace. And what we find in every appearance of God through the book of Exodus is one reminder after another that it was not the power and ability of people to deliver themselves. The deliverance of God's people was all by the power of God. We learn something. Any of our deliverance is not through self-effort. It's not through us digging deep and trying to pull ourselves up. Even the 12-step recovery programs. One of the early points of discovery is owning the fact that I can't do it on my own. That my deliverance, my freedom, is not something that I can self-achieve. Our salvation cannot come through our own efforts. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
And so it is seen right there in Exodus that salvation, deliverance, freedom does not come by self-effort, but by the hand of God, by the power of God. It was God who worked those miracles to show His power in Egypt. It was God who changed the heart of Pharaoh. It was God who caused that pillar of cloud to come to protect the Israelites when they were had their backs up against the Red Sea. It was God who parted the Red Sea. It was God who allowed them to go through miraculously on dry ground. And then it was God who converged the waters to crush the army of Pharaoh. It was God who fed them the miracle bread and water. It's all God. Salvation, deliverance, freedom is not by self-effort, but by the hand and grace of God. Now, you and I have a built-in bias... Some of us, first of all, have a bias against history. And some of us have a bias against what is old. There are some history buffs in the room. I can almost spot history buffs. Once in a while, oh, I love history. Oh, really? I wouldn't have suspected that. But most people, oh, I, 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 I could tell. I could tell you, you, you would love history. Well, let me just say, because there are 17 history books in the Old Testament, and there's one history book in the New Testament, and just so that the non-history buffs don't lay them aside and say, I don't like history. Those aren't for me. Let me just say, God's history books are valuable for every one of us. They are teaching tools. In fact, write this down. This is not in your notes, but it's a significant insight. Every piece of Israel's history recorded in the Bible has prophetic significance for you and me. Every piece of Israel's history recorded in the Bible has prophetic application, and significance for you and me. If you don't believe that, you really don't believe the Bible. And I will show you why. Turn with me please now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, 1 Corinthians, by the way, is in the New Testament. We take nothing for granted around here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now this is in your notes. It's under the live this book section. But I want us to see something here that is entirely significant. Because unless we overcome the pride and arrogance of saying, let let me put it this way. Let me just have your attention. You're all diligently looking for, for 1 Corinthians. Let me just say something here. I'm sitting down because if if there was only one person in the room, that's how I would feel right now. 
If it was just you. I just want to say something just to you. You and I have some arrogant, prideful thoughts. One of them being that we feel superior to people who lived 3,500 years ago. Underneath, we have this evolutionary feeling, the survival of the fittest, and we are superior to people long ago. I want to tell you that is a lie. It's twisted pride. You and I are no more superior in intellect, in moral bearings, in our potential of what we can achieve, no higher on the food chain than Adam or Abraham or Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, any of them along the way. And if you think you are superior, you have a root problem. It's called pride. And it will twist your vision. And you will think that studying this stuff is useless. But if you accept the fact that when God created humanity, He did it right to begin with, and if anything, there's been a downward spiral, There is little evidence of the contrary. And there's a lot of evidence to support the fact that we are finding ourselves in more and more trouble. And more and more issues are surfacing. Now, if you're really going to read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, with a sincere heart to learn from them. You have to embrace the fact that they were just as capable, just as intelligent, just as morally sensitive as you are. 1 Corinthians 10. Look at verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples. Look at verse 11. These things happen to them as examples. What are we talking about, these things? These things, entirely in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 14, all of them are specific moments in the life of Moses and his followers. And they are all recorded in the book of Exodus, and the book of Numbers. Now Paul begins chapter 10 by saying, for I do not want you to be ignorant. This is one of Paul's pet expressions. When he talked on spiritual gifts, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. When he talked on spiritual warfare, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. And now he's talking on spiritual insight and our view of history and what we can learn from the past. I do not want you to be ignorant. And then what he does, he takes the two Christian sacraments 
of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we embrace and cherish dearly. And he finds them in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. He likens when Israel walked through the Red Sea on dry ground as their baptism in water. And the Lord's Supper, the bread referring to the manna in the wilderness, and the miracle beverage, the water that came miraculously out of the rock. And he's saying here in these two accounts that as much as we think Baptism and the Lord's Supper are new things. They had their own form of baptism in the Lord's Supper. We have that much in common. And then he comes to these amazing verses 6 through 11. Between verses 6 and 11, four times he repeats, as some of them. Verse 7, as some of them were. Verse 8. As some of them did. Verse 9, as some of them did. Verse 10, as some of them did. The first example comes from Exodus 32. It's verse 7, 1 Corinthians 10. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down and ate and drank. They got up and indulged in pagan revelry. The issue that he's referring to was the hiccup of the young Israel's journey of the golden calf. That example of paganism, of idolatry. The people of God making for themselves a symbol in the form of God the way the pagans had done. And specifically, it was a calf representing Baal. Brothers and sisters, that in history was a prophetic statement for us to guard ourselves against idolatry. In fact, when the whole passage is done, he comes back to that thought in verse 13, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. The issue here is affection. God wants our affection. God wants our undivided loyalty. He does not want us sharing our affections with any other gods. He wants to be God alone to us and to have our undivided loyalty, our affections. The second issue, verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. This example comes to us from the book of Numbers 25. The issue here is appetites. God does not want our appetites controlling us and us fulfilling our appetites, whether physical or sensual or sexual. Appetites to please our twisted, selfish Nature. And so God puts limitations to protect the sanctity of human sexuality. But the issue is appetites. With idolatry, the issue is affection. With sexual immorality, the issue is appetite. We come to the third, verse 9. 
We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. That's recorded in Numbers 21. What is testing the Lord? Testing the Lord is when we push the envelopes. Now, my personality is one that pushes envelopes. I enjoy pushing envelopes. I'll always test the envelope. Well, who says we can't? Well, if there's no good reason, let's try. Oh, oh, you don't want to jump off that into the water. Well, how do we know? Have we tried? Let's try it. Maybe go down and see how deep it is first, but let's try it. Oh, we've always done it this way. Yeah, but could it be done better? When it comes to work, can't we improve? There are certain, and and in terms of job performance, I totally believe that it, it can always be done better. God made us wired for excellence. And He wants us pushing envelopes of excellence and productivity and efficiency. But there are some boundary markers that we don't want to move. It's when God says, no, I've established that envelope. Oh, okay, Lord. And I've learned to submit to those boundary lines. When we test the Lord, we test not man's limitations, but we test God's. We go beyond what God said. And when God sets up a boundary marker, He does not want us violating it or we will be testing Him. The issue at this point is one of authority. Am I going to submit to God's authority or not? And the opposite is unbelief. I don't trust Him. I'm going to do what feels right. My feelings will dictate what is right and what is wrong. And that's exactly what Israel did. And you and I are no different than they were, but we can make different choices. Verse 8 deals with idolatry, but the issue is one of affections. God wants our affections. Verse 9 is, I'm sorry, let me see, do I have the verses right? Verse 7 deals with idolatry. The issue is affections. Verse 8 deals with sexual immorality, but the issue is appetite. God wants our appetites sanctified to Him. He wants us not feeding on the delicacies of this age, but He wants us feeding on Him. Verse 9 deals with unbelief. And what God wants is to have the authority. And verse 10 deals with this issue of grumbling. We read, And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. This refers to an incident in Numbers 14. Now, if you were to pair grumbling, you'd almost wonder, what's that doing on the list? Why is grumbling so important? Doesn't everybody grumble? I mean, what a harmless thing. I want to spend the day grumbling. Oh, it didn't snow. Oh, it snowed, but it snowed too much. Oh, it snowed, but it lasted too long. I just feel like grumbling. 
You can spend your whole life grumbling. What's the big deal? I mean, everybody does it. Let me show you something. The second issue dealt with in verse 8 was sexual immorality. Verse 10 deals with grumbling. How many died by sexual immorality? 23,000. It's actually 24,000. How many died by grumbling? Everybody. What's worse? What do you mean everybody? Everybody forfeited getting into the promised land because they grumbled and complained. That's what the Bible says. The only two that didn't grumble and complain were Caleb and Joshua. What's the issue with grumbling? God wants our affirmation. God wants our praise. And the last one, dealing with grumbling, takes us back to the first one, idolatry. Idolatry, what God wants is affection. And grumbling, what God wants is our affirmation and our praise, which takes us back to putting Him first. You see, it's all about where our hearts are oriented. And if we are grumbling and complaining, the fact of the matter is, we are judging what's good according to what pleases us. If what pleases us is God, then let's just be honest about it. We're not Christian. Christians say what pleases God is what's good. And what's best for me is what pleases Him. And the most pleasing thing to me ultimately is what's going to please Him. And I'm going to be hitting on all cylinders when I'm in alignment with what pleases Him. And the next verse, beware when you think you stand lest you fall. Whenever I hear that a fellow colleague, Christian leader somewhere around the world fell morally, the first verse that God slices across my heart is beware when you think you stand lest you fall. And then the next verse, No temptation has come to us except what is common to man from the beginning. But God is greater than the temptation. And He will provide a way of escape so that you can stand up under it. Hallelujah! Let's have a collective amen around the room. Come on, let's give it up to the Lord. He provides a way of escape. That way of escape is the exodus. It's the Exodus. It's what the book of Exodus is all about, that God is greater and He provides a way of escape. Now, if deliverance was just something that some people groups need, the oppressed and a few of the isolated people groups around the world, this wouldn't be in the Bible. It wasn't just the nation of Israel that needed an Exodus. Everyone needs an Exodus. Jesus put in the Lord's Prayer, but deliver us from the evil one because we all need to be delivered from the evil one. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He said, when the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that freedom is yours on this Martin Luther King weekend. Because there's a God who hears the hard cries of every person in bondage, 
whether it's in bondage to romance novels or pornography or an illicit relationship or some addiction or some anger that you were raised in your family with, with anger and you grew up thinking that's normal, but it's not normal and it overtakes you every once in a while, you need deliverance and you can have deliverance. The book of Exodus is for us. The same God that led His people back then out of bondage wants to lead you out of bondage. Hallelujah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I was raised in the north. How many others were raised in the north? Okay, I bet the same group went out and shoveled snow just for old time's sake. Yeah, I knew I wasn't alone. I knew I wasn't alone. You, you know, if you don't, it, it hardens and freezes and gets stuck together. All you need to do to, for the snow to melt is to break it up. Move it away and let it sit all by itself and it'll melt. But you let it stick together and it's too big. But you whack away at it a piece at a time, you break it up and it'll all melt. God gives deliverance sequentially. Sometimes we think, oh man, that deliverance was great, but it was only partial. What you didn't realize is that you got more frozen areas inside your soul. And there's more that needs to come. Thankfully, God does not deal with us all at once or, or we'd be like dematerialized. We'd like... Pssst. He deals with us Systematically. One lousy thought after another. One bad habit after another. His deliverance continues. Praise God. Would you all stand with me? I want to lead us in prayer.